this morning's message I've entitled, Victory in Jesus, the Son of God. Victory in Jesus, the Son of God, from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 13. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 13. I want to warn you, I um, took a couple of days out of town with my family this weekend, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, which means that I was working feverishly to get the message as done as possible very early in the week, which is a wonderful thing. In fact, I try to do that most weeks, but this week I've had a particularly uh, large amount of time to just meditate on the text of Scripture, having had the sermon finished but not finished. So, uh, who knows where this might go this morning. You might get some extra bonus material, and uh, just hang on, okay? From Scripture's first pages, God urges us to find life through the Son of Promise, the Promised Son. Mark wants us to know that when Jesus arrives, the Son has arrived. We know that He is the Promised Son because He's the Lord. We saw this last week. He comes in the ways the Old Testament promised. He's mightier and worthier than even John the Baptist, and He baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And as we will see this morning, He is victorious where we fail. I, I as you know, I'm a Virginia Tech fan, but I am also a Washington Redskins fan. And over the last 20 or so years, it's not been as good for Redskins fans as it has been for Hokies fans. Hokies have been relevant oftentimes in January, whereas the Redskins have been sitting at home twiddling their thumbs for several weeks by the time January rolls around. But as a Redskins fan, I discovered, I don't know, I was in middle school sometime, I said, you know... If we can't win and we're pretty lousy, then maybe I should get an AFC team. And I don't know what I was doing at the time, but I picked the New England Patriots. And at the time, they were lousy. They weren't good either. I guess misery loves company. But it turns out the Patriots became a pretty good team. I decided, well, if my team can't win, then I may as well try to pick another and hope that they are a winner. And the point that Mark is making to us in these verses, verses 9 through 13, is that Jesus is a winner. Jesus wins in the place of those who would otherwise lose. And we're going to see that as we tease out these verses together. Hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Would you bow with me? God, help us in the moments to come to comprehend afresh and in a deeper way who Jesus is. Help us to truly find the hope that we should have in the gospel, that Jesus is God in my place. Jesus is the servant who ran the race and did not fail in the most difficult of circumstances. God, we want to give you the praise this morning for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be counted as those who are in Christ and in Him victorious. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Danny Aiken writes of these verses that the main idea is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the servant king who fights God's enemies on behalf of God's people. And notice where Jesus is in order to do this warring against sin. He's out in the wilderness. He's in the place Adam and Eve had to go after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. He's in the place where the Israelites wander for 40 years because they failed to trust God and take the promised land when Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. With God as our help, we can go. The wilderness, by the way, is a picture of life outside of the promises and the plan of God. It's a picture of the dry barrenness of our lives, separated from the favorable presence of God. But it is also where Jesus goes to meet sinners and to deliver them from certain and everlasting failure and into His victory. So the, the promise that we find in Mark chapter 1, verses 9-13 through 13, is that Jesus can deliver us from the wilderness and into the kingdom of God. Now, part of that you have to wait for verse 14 to see because Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God. But here He is in the wilderness and He wants to lead those who are identified with Jesus from the wilderness to the kingdom of God. And He can do that for three reasons that we see in this text. First... He identifies with sinners in His baptism. Second, He is the Spirit-empowered servant King and beloved Son of the Father. So, He identifies Himself with us. He wants to count in our place. Second, just who He is. By nature of who He is, He qualifies to deliver us from sin. And finally, He is victorious over sin and Satan. First, he identifies with sinners in his baptism. Verse 9. Notice, Jesus does not confess or repent of any sins. Why? Because he doesn't have any to repent of. He is a sinless Savior, and yet he submits himself to baptism because he is aligning himself with those that he came to save. Jesus is showing us that he will humble himself to the point of death, a death caused by our sins. Why? To pay the price that we should have paid to give us in turn the life that we desperately need. Jesus' baptism by water foreshadows His death. By going under the water, Jesus points to the reason He's come, to enter the grave and strip it of its power. As Aiken, Aiken writes, the baptism is the beginning of His humiliation as He faithfully submits to the Father's will and willingly identifies Himself with sinful humanity. Jesus, by the way, comes from Nazareth. You don't hear much about Nazareth in Mark's Gospel, but here it is mentioned. Nazareth in Galilee, a small unknown town in Galilee, a region, by the way, that was despised because of its distance from Jerusalem and known for its infestation of Gentiles. In other words, they're outsiders. They're people who don't belong. They're not near the temple complex. They don't count. We're not going to worry about those people. They're on the wrong side of the tracks. They're outsiders. But don't you know that Jesus came for outsiders and that you can't be an insider with Jesus until you recognize you're an outsider because of your sin, that you're out there wandering in the wilderness, and that if a Savior doesn't come to deliver you from the wilderness of your sin, that you'll never enter the promised land, even where Jesus comes from, reflects those that He has come for. Not the ones who feel like they have it all together. Not the ones who feel like they deserve it. Not the ones who feel like they've got 
uh, everything put together in terms of their knowledge of the Scriptures, but those who are distant and even those who don't belong, He has come to save sinners who are on the outside. Sinners, by the way, deserve to die. So Jesus submits to a baptism that He personally did not need to publicly submit to His Father's will, even though it meant He would die to deliver deliver sinners from death. But the next question that follows is, why should we trust that Jesus is the one who can be a substitute for sinners? Why this Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee? And it is because of what Mark shows us in verses 10 and 11, because Jesus is who we've been waiting for. Jesus is the promised deliverer of the Old Testament. He is the suffering servant. He is the king and he is the beloved son. And he is all three in one. Jesus is God's spirit-empowered servant king and beloved son of the Father. Verses 10 and 11, in those verses, Mark wants us to know Jesus checks all the boxes necessary to fulfill God's plan and give us his victory. How many of you have flown on a plane? You don't have to raise your hands, but I would guess many of you have taken a flight or two or three or ten. Now, what do they do before they ever allow that pilot to take off on that plane? They go through a pre-flight checklist, do they not? You know, do the flaps work? Are the wings attached? Does the motor work? Yeah, are we going to actually attempt this or not? Because if we're going to attempt this, there are some things we got to make sure are in place. What Mark is showing us is the pre-flight checklist for salvation that Jesus has checked all the boxes. There are no boxes that the Old Testament gives us that Jesus Himself does not check. We know that victory will mean an escape from the enslaving power of sin. We know that it will come through one who serves the the Lord in the Spirit's power. We know that it will include a king over a kingdom that never ends. And we know that the way back to the garden is through a son who will defeat Satan. Jesus is the Spirit-empowered servant king and beloved son of the Father promised in the Old Testament. If you don't believe me, or perhaps you are a little rusty on your Old Testament this morning, consider Isaiah 64.1. The prophet speaks of a day when what would happen? God would rend the heavens and come down to deliver His people. What happens in verse 10? The heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God comes down literally into Jesus. In 1 Samuel 16.13, God tells Samuel to anoint David and look what happens. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day Forward In Isaiah 42.1, the prophet writes, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In Jesus, the hope of final victory has come because of who he is. Because he is the spirit-indwelled servant king in whom God delights. Edwards notes, the spirit's descent into Jesus indicates His complete filling and equipping for ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Aiken says this, the, de- the descent of the Spirit 
The Spirit coming down means the time has come for the servant king to step up or to ascend to the public stage. When the Spirit comes down on Jesus, Jesus is stepping up to say the kingdom has come and He has come in me and He's ready to go forth and preach repentance and remission of sins to the nations because Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Although Jesus, by the way, is God in the flesh, He conquers our sin, and this is so important. He conquers our sin as an obedient man. The servant of God. Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So often, I think we think of Jesus and we think, yeah, He lived a sinless life, but He was cheating. Because He was God. It was easy for Him. No, it wasn't easy for him. In fact, I submit to you, it was harder for him than it was for us because when he's driven out in the wilderness and he's faced with starvation because we know from the other Gospels that he fasts there 40 days and 40 nights and Satan says, come on, I'll give you some bread. Oh, just bow down to me and I'll take care of every need that you have. Jesus, in that moment, could have gone anywhere in the world, but he has already submitted to the will of the Father and said he's going to go and suffer on a cross for us and he cannot sin in that moment or our salvation is lost forever. He is God in the flesh and could have gone anywhere. But He stays in the wilderness for you and for me. As Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says, although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. John Piper writes this, when Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines. He had put on his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven who had sent him for this very combat signified with the appearance of the dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in this battle and in the battles to come. You see, the Old Testament teaches us that salvation must come through a faithful and victorious servant of God, but also through an acceptable sacrifice. This too is Jesus. Notice in verse 11, He's called the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. This language should remind us of Genesis 22, verse 2. Do you remember the story where Abraham and Isaac are supposed to go out to Mount Moriah and they journey for three days, and on the third day, Isaac's going to be sacrificed by his father. Ultimately, the angel of the Lord comes and stops him and says, in that day, in the mouth of the Lord, a lamb will be provided. So we're still looking for a son and a lamb who will be slain, who's the beloved of the father. Genesis 22.2, God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as an offering. Jesus is the greater and better Isaac, the beloved Son of the Father who is offered up for the sons of men. Jesus is qualified both by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and by the public endorsement of His Father, the voice of God ringing from heaven, Behold, this is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. He is qualified to go to war against sin and Satan in the wilderness. These confirmations of Jesus' identity are a big deal biblically. When the disciples replaced Judas, they had to make sure that his replacement 
had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism. This is the moment when the Godhead comes out and says, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son. Jesus is your everything. And in this moment, I want you, the world, to know that Jesus is the one you've been looking for. And if He succeeds, you can succeed. If He fails, salvation is a failure. There is no hope. So we can understand why this moment in Jesus' ministry, His ascent to ministry, is so important. The, he- the heavens split and the Trinity is on display as the Spirit indwells the Son and the Father encourages the Son to go to war against sin and Satan and death. Now, a, a quick word about the Trinity. What, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is God. God is triune. I want to write down or hopefully give you a helpful definition of the Trinity this morning. Here's how I speak of the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. When the Spirit comes down, God is there. When Jesus is there, all of God is there. And when the Father, His voice booms out, all of God is speaking. Each person is fully God, and this is one God. No analogy can adequately reflect it. No mathematician or philosopher can credibly dispute it. As Adrian Rogers said, the doctrine of the Trinity is not beyond logic and reason, just above it. I like to say it this way, the Trinity is not irrational, it is supra-rational. And if you think you're going to understand everything about the holy God of the universe, then you've gotten off on the wrong foot. right? If, if you think, even in eternity, I'm going to understand all of who God is, then you, your God is way too small. So we can't fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but without the Trinity, we cannot be saved because salvation is by grace. In other words, it's a gift that comes from God and it is God giving us Himself and it is entirely given by God. It's not by God and someone else. So if Jesus is not God, then God has given us someone other than God and therefore we're not saved by grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible doesn't add up if the, Trinity, if the doctrine of the Trinity is not true because salvation is God giving us Himself in our place. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. And because of the grace of God, where we failed to serve Him, the servant of God must not fail. Because if Jesus fails, we will die in the wilderness. As Danny Aiken writes, if Jesus loses, we are lost. But Jesus didn't lose. Jesus is victorious over sin and Satan. When Mark mentions Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and the Spirit driving Him out into the wilderness for 40 days, our minds should start popping off Uh, I think we've been here before. Jordan River, wilderness, kind of sounds familiar. Kind of sounds like Israel when they crossed the Jordan River. Kind of sounds like Adam and Eve when they were driven out into the wilderness. It seems time and time and time again in the Old Testament that salvation may come through Noah after 40 days and nights on the water. Or perhaps when the covenant with God is renewed on Mount Sinai 
where Moses was with the Lord and did not eat bread or water for 40 days and nights. Or through the Israelites after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when those were over and the promised land was before them. But the Israelites, as you will recall, they cross the Jordan, they take Jericho, but almost immediately idolatry resurfaces and they settle for partial victories and half-hearted obedience to God and salvation seems to be a failure. Once again, it seems that salvation has fallen short. But the reality is, it is we who fail. So what are we to do? We're to keep looking. And Mark says, the one you are looking for has come. Jesus comes to take your place in the wilderness so that you may be delivered back into the garden. Adam, by the way, fails in a garden, but Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. When God has Moses say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, my firstborn Let my son go that he may serve me. God knew that Israel was going to fail. But he also knew that his firstborn son was going to come and that he would not fail. Edwards writes that Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Do you remember when Abraham asked God if there were 50 righteous, if he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah? Or perhaps if there were 40 righteous, would he spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And what is God's answer? Sure, I will. Well, what about 30, God? What about 20, God? What about 10, God? Every time God says, sure, I would spare them. And the implication, even though Abraham doesn't get all the way down to one, the implication is that if there was just one righteous in the city, that God would spare the city on behalf of the righteous one, but there aren't any righteous there. And so God comes and He rends the heavens and He comes down and the Spirit indwells Christ, the servant of God, and He goes into the wilderness to win where we have lost. He comes to be the one righteous standing on behalf of all of those who would unite with Him in His baptism and who would die to self and be counted as dead with Christ and raised to life in Him. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the true Israel. What we did not do in a garden, He does in the deepest wilderness and in the most dark and desperate of conditions. In Matthew, we learn Jesus was fasting during His 40 days in the wilderness. No food or drink. Facing Satan and wild beasts and great temptation. And He emerges victorious in verse 14, preaching the kingdom of God. You say, what does that have to do with me, Pastor? Let me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked God, God, do you understand what I'm facing? God, do you understand what I'm feeling? God, do you know how much this hurts? God, I'm ready to give up. God, I want to quit. But don't you know the same 
Spirit that descended upon the man Jesus, the servant of God, is the same Spirit that gives you life and salvation too. And even if He drives you into the wilderness to face down Satan and wild beasts and to be hungry, the power, that same power that God gave to Jesus is the power that He gives to every single one of us who trust and receive life and godliness through God the Son. Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus faced? He is God. He could have been anywhere in the universe and He chose to stay in the wilderness, in the place of your deepest pain and darkest hour and He did it to shut down Satan. All Satan needed to do was get Jesus to back out on suffering and dying for you and me. All He had to do was get Jesus to say, the pain is too great. The pain in the wilderness is so great, I'm backing out and I'm not going to the cross. But Jesus did not back out of the wilderness. He did not back down in the face of the cross. And He submitted to His Father to deliver you from life in the wilderness to life everlasting in His Son. And just as Christ submitted to His Father to bring you salvation, He is calling you to submit your life to Him no matter how costly, no matter how challenging, no matter how convicting, no matter how dangerous, in order that Christ would be known as the super-exalted Lord of all who died and substituted Himself for you. We are saved by a Savior who submitted Himself to the Father for you. So we ought not be surprised that He calls us to submit ourselves to Him. As Danny Aiken writes, Christian, be encouraged. Christ knows what you're going through. Even more, His angels came to His aid. Do you see that in verse 13? The angels came and ministered to Him. And the verb is written in a way that says this isn't just at the end of the 40 days. During His time in the wilderness as it's getting darker and He's getting hungrier and Satan is becoming more convincing and He's beginning to listen to what Satan has to say. Angels are there ministering to Him. And then Danny Aiken adds this, they may be sent by God to serve us as well. Hebrews 1.14 The angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Brothers and sisters, 1 John 3.8 tells us the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. So Jesus goes into the wilderness and He wins at our place of greatest weakness. The obedience of Jesus in the wilderness proves that God is not and was not holding something back from us. Think about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, they believe the lie of Satan that God is holding out on them. He's holding something back. He's withholding the good life from them. And so what does Jesus do? He comes down into the place of our sin. He comes down into the wilderness. He comes down into the dryness of our lives. And He gives Himself for us. God wanted us to be able to enjoy Him forever. He gives us Himself. And He gives us all we need by sending the Holy Spirit to live for Him at all times and in all circumstances. If we have truly died to ourselves and been raised with the One who died for us, the promise of Mark's Gospel is that as Jesus is victorious, we likewise are victorious. I don't know where you are this morning. 
I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. I don't know what temptations you face. I don't know where in your life that the lies of Satan sound the strongest. But here's what I know. We serve a king who went into the heart of the wilderness in the darkest of conditions and he won there. And he poured out that same Holy Spirit upon you that you can win there too. So let today be the day that you secure true victory through Christ the servant king and beloved. Son, would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we thank You and we praise You that You sent Jesus Christ the Son, the Beloved of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, victorious in the wilderness, faithful to the end. God, if there's anyone here who has not found victory over sin in the midst of this dark wilderness, God, I pray today would be the day they would surrender their all to You and find life and victory everlasting. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, if you're a guest at North Roanoke and you've been coming for some time and you'd like to be a part of a church that believes the Bible is true, and that there's a heaven and a hell, and that Jesus makes all the difference, we invite you to come and join with us on mission in the Roanoke Valley and around the world. And if perhaps this morning you don't know this servant king who walked into the wilderness for you in order that you might be purchased back and delivered into the garden, we invite you to come and give your life to Christ, the risen king. Let's stand and sing together.